I read this week of how they found Elvis Presley when they discovered that he was dead. He was lying in a prone position on his face, on his front, and beneath him two books were open, a Bible and a book on the Shroud of Turin. I think Elvis might have been looking for something. It might be the same thing that you are looking for here tonight. U2 has a famous lyric that gets at this. Many of you could sing along. I have climbed highest mountains. I have run through the fields. Only to be with you. Only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, these city walls, only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Looking for something. Imagine if you were supposed to be the somebody who had what everybody was looking for. Suppose that you were the the teacher. You were the one that people went to for answers. And yet in your heart, you still were looking for something and you hadn't found it yet. That is the irony of the character that we are studying here tonight. He was Israel's answer man, but the answers that he was doling out to people failed to answer the questions of his own heart and soul. And so we're in John 3 tonight, our series, I Met Jesus, perhaps the most famous chapter in all of the Bible, because it has the most famous verse. John chapter 3. And we're just going to work our way through it here a little bit and figure out who this feller was. Here's how it begins. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So let's just begin by asking the question, who was Nicodemus? And right away, we are told a lot. First of all, his name. It means conqueror of the people. Aptly named guy, because he really was a kind of captain, a kind of leader For all of the people of Israel, he was a very important and a very powerful man. What do we know about him? Well, we know a couple things. First of all, he is called a little later in this by Jesus himself, the teacher of Israel. You have to realize in first century Judaism, a country and a people that lived according to the Old Testament law, To be the teacher or a teacher of the Old Testament law was to automatically be in the upper echelon of society. He was, he was somebody. He was, he was well known. People had heard his teaching. He had a name and it was a name that was recognized. Nicodemus. Think, think of him perhaps in this category like a professor, only a famous professor. Maybe a famous professor at Ohio State University or at Notre Dame. And uh, think about what it must be like to be that famous professor as you walk across campus, eminently respected everywhere that you go. That was Nicodemus. 
We know also from this that he was highly educated. In order for him to become the teacher of Israel, a land given to the teaching of the Old Testament, he would have had to have uh, gone through all of the, the top educational opportunities of the day. So this is a guy, maybe you meet people like this, or you, see, you get letters from them, and, and there's their name, and then after their name, you, what do you find? Lots of letters, right? And you, you start counting the letters and you realize they have more letters behind their name than you had years in elementary school. Uh, and you think, wow, this must be somebody very smart. Why? So academically accomplished. This was Nicodemus. He was also uh, religiously powerful. And we see right there in verse 1 that he was one of the Pharisees. Now, you, you maybe know about the Pharisees because this is a fairly notorious group. If you read through the Gospels, they come up all the time because they were the primary group that was in opposition to Jesus. And so much of what Jesus taught in his parables and other things was in contrast or in conflict with this, these Pharisees. However, so we look down on them. In the first century, they didn't look down on them. They were very much admired. If you were a Pharisee, that meant that you were respected. You were viewed as being very spiritual, very godly. You were in a right relationship with God. You, you were very careful in your religious walk. They were very much admired. And their teachings were very influential in the day because they told people how they could have a relationship with God. The Pharisees' great mistake, though and this is what Jesus was all the time highlighting, was that they externalized the law. They followed God. Their relationship, their religion was about outward conformity, attempting to outwardly conform to the rules and the regulations of the law, which they themselves added to. And, of course, their great mistake is that God does not begin on the outside. He begins on the inside. And God has always been primarily concerned with our hearts and a change that begins on the inside and works its way to the outside. So, the Pharisees, we see that. And right away, if you like Jesus, and I assume people that just got done singing to him like Jesus a lot, maybe love him, hopefully do, Uh, To see that this guy is a Pharisee is to see him as a part of the conspiratory group. Because the Pharisees were the primary conspirators in the murder of Jesus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. On top of that, he was politically powerful. He is identified as a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin in the the day, were this was the top... Uh, political, governmental, ruling party of the day. These were the aristocrats. These were the movers and the shakers. Other than the Romans, they were the most powerful people. Uh, and they certainly were the most powerful Jews uh, of the day. And so Nicodemus was a member of this group as well. To be a Pharisee doesn't automatically mean that you're a Sanhedrin. Only the top Pharisees would also be a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee and was a member of this political ruling party. He was a very powerful man. On top of that, he was rich. And often these things go together. He was rich, and we're going to see in a moment... Uh, as Nicodemus reveals his wealth in a most unusual way. So here's the profile. Okay, are you all with me? We have 
perhaps the most religiously, other than the high priest and maybe a few others, religiously the most significant and powerful man of his day, who at the same time is a member of the most political party of the day, who at the same time walks around Jerusalem and everybody knows who he is. He has a way about him. He has a manner about him. This is a man of importance. This is a man of significance. Nicodemus was an important man. And I think important in the story to realize that Nicodemus uh, represented the best that the Jewish religion had to offer. We're not talking about a tax collector here who everybody knew was cheating everybody. We're talking about a guy who, if, 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 if Judaism in the first century was going to put somebody forward and say, here's a guy that's right with God, this was Nicodemus. And that's going to be important in a moment. All right, so there's your introduction. Does everybody know him? Feel like you've known him all your life. Are you with me tonight? Okay. Now, notice what it says next. This man came to Jesus by night. This man came to Jesus by night. I thought about entitling this message, Nick at Night. But somehow I thought it a little inappropriate for the uh, reverence of the, of, the, of the message. But Nick comes at night. And we're not told exactly why he comes at night, but it stands to reason that a man of his stature, a man who could go anywhere he wanted to, any time he wanted to, and probably have security along with him, for him to go in the day and to be seen with Jesus would have done damage to his reputation and his stature. You know what I mean? Jesus was a Galilean. Jesus was the rabble rouser. He was from up north. He was a, he was, he was like Larry Bird. He was the French from, or the, the, the hick from French Lick. This was Larry, this was Larry Bird. This was Jesus. Do not confuse Larry Bird with Jesus because (laughs) that's where it ends right there. But you see how a man of such stature and a man who probably had all of his life very carefully crafted his image and cared for his image. The last thing that his image could bear was to be seen with Jesus, a man who the Pharisees already are hating and probably already beginning to whisper, we've got to take this guy out. I believe that he came at night because he was curious and I think apparently still hadn't found what he's looking for I wonder if tonight it might not be a little bit like you at our Saturday night service as you slipped through the darkness to come to church here you are what are you looking for so can you imagine this let's just put this in your mind here Here comes Nicodemus. It's nighttime. And he is walking through the streets. And I I have, uh, in my mind, I have to believe if he's coming at night, he also isn't walking around with a big sign saying, I'm Nicodemus. He's probably in some common outfit. I see him with one of those little saws drawn around his face. And he's just kind of walking around hoping that nobody recognizes who he is. And somehow he knows where Jesus is staying in Jerusalem. He gets to the door and he looks both ways. And somebody comes to the door. Yes, I was hoping that I could meet and talk with Jesus. Um, it's late. 
Yeah, yes, I know it's late, but I just need a few minutes. We're tired. Yes, but I really, really would like to speak with him. Who are you? My name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus? Yeah. You're the last person I expected to see out here tonight. And I imagine somehow Jesus saying, let him in. I want to talk to this man. And so even though it's at night, in comes Nicodemus, and he and Jesus sit down, and they begin to have this very famous conversation, uh, and one that many of you are familiar with. But as he comes in, I have to believe he had the jewelry, he had the, he had the, the expensive clothes, he just had a way about him that said, this is somebody of importance. But Jesus looked past his reputation and looked past his outer bling and he saw him for who he really was. He was a man searching for the truth and Jesus wanted to talk to him. So what happened? Well, we pick it up now, this conversation uh, in verse 2. Nicodemus goes first. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And we'll stop there. Now, I'm telling you right now, I don't have time to work verse by verse through this whole section. And really our purpose is to see Nicodemus and Jesus here. But we do need to talk a little bit about what they are, what they are doing here and what's going on. Remember I said a moment ago that Nicodemus represented the best that Judaism had to offer. He's like the pinnacle. He's the quintessential example of Jewish religion in the first century. In fact, in many ways, what we have here is we have two men representing two radically different ways to God, which I'll get to in a moment. Nicodemus begins by admitting something. He says this, we know that you're a teacher from God, and we don't know who the we there is, he and his wife, he and his friends, he and some others in the Sanhedrin, we don't know. But we know that you are from God because nobody could do the things that you're doing and not be in relationship with God, not have God in proximity with him. And so apparently Nicodemus maybe had seen, he might have been in Cana for the changing of the water to wine. He might have seen some other miracle not recorded. We don't know. But Nicodemus saw and heard about it and it was enough for him to say, you know what? I got to believe this guy is legit because look at the things that he's doing. And so he comes uh, to, to Jesus here and he says to him, Rabbi, I believe that you're, you're like, you're in, you're in relationship with God. Or actually what he says is, he says that you are a teacher come from God. Because no one can do the things that you're doing if they're not. Now what would you imagine Jesus would say in a moment like that? If we were writing the script, or if it was you? Because here's what I probably would do if somebody, you know, if I was Jesus in a moment like that, I'd say something like, well, <clears throat> thank you very much. So nice of you to say that. Thank you for your thank you. Appreciate it. Glad you came all the way out here to tell me that tonight. Something like that. But there is none of that from Jesus because, again, Jesus knows Nicodemus' heart. And he knows what he needs. 
And so he just right away says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, one of the things that we admire about Jesus is how he has this uncanny ability to take his finger and to put it on the very source of the problem. Do you remember uh, with the rich young ruler who came to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life or to enter the kingdom of God? And uh, Jesus says, well, fulfill the law. And he goes, I have since I was a youth. And Jesus looks at him and goes, sell all of your possessions, give them to the poor and come follow me. And here's the rich young ruler, suddenly stripped, bare, naked, to the very source of the problem. And you see him going, what? You know, that's the rich young ruler. But that's what Jesus did. And by the way, he's been doing that for 2,000 years through the words of scripture. And I hope it happens tonight. He speaks to the human condition. He speaks to the human heart. And he speaks now to Nicodemus's heart. There's no little friendly banter. There's no little this or that. Just boom. He gets right to the issue and he says, if you are not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Actually, he is basically doing this. Here comes Nicodemus. He's got the resume. He's got all of the accomplishments. He's got all of the, 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 the outward signs of spiritual success and all the rest. He sits down in his flowing gown and, and whatever he looked like. And Jesus looks at him in one statement. He sweeps away all of the things that Nicodemus stood for. I don't care about your academic degree. I don't care who people think that you are. I don't care that you are the teacher of all Israel. I don't care that you're a member of the Sanhedrin. I don't care that you can, you got pilot on speed dial. I don't care about any of that stuff. Because none of that matters. You can have all of that. But if you are not born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And I imagine Nicodemus sitting there and listening to Jesus say this and in his heart going, What? Does he know who I am? Does he realize the school that I graduated from? Does he realize that I haven't missed temple worship one Sabbath all my life? Does he know who my rabbi was growing up? Well, can you see him sort of working through his, sort of the props that he had always trusted in? So that he would know that maybe he was right with God? Does that sound like anybody that you might know? (laughs) Nicodemus, your whole belief system is based on a false premise. That salvation is something that you do. And Jesus uses a fascinating metaphor... For what is actually required. And he, here it is. And many of you have heard this for so long. It doesn't, it doesn't have the sort of shocking sound that it had to Nicodemus. Born again. You must be born again. Like what is that talking about? Born again. And clearly Nicodemus is bewildered here. Because you see his response. This is one of these sort of funny moments in the Bible to me. Because his response is just, he's just fundamentally confused by this. And he says, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, he's asking, do we crawl back in and do it over? 
And that's an image you're going to struggle to get out of your mind the rest of this message, I guarantee. But that's the funny thing. It's like, Nicodemus is going, I just don't get what you're saying here. Because what? Nicodemus was thinking physically. And what is Jesus thinking? Spiritually. You must be born again. Jesus answered, we go on, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. And you wonder if they're sitting on a back veranda in a house and almost sort of in the palm trees, the sound. He's kind of saying, see the sound, the wind, the wind blows wherever it wants. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now friends, what is Jesus getting at here with Nicodemus? It's this question. Where does salvation come from? Who is the active agent in the saving? And Nicodemus represents the religious man. And this this is true of all the religions of the world, not just Judaism, but the very religious man. Sincere, very devout, very faithful, doing all of the things that the, the, the temple or the mosque or the chapel or the whatever it is, is saying that you must do, faithfully doing it. But his faith is resting in his doing of it. In his accomplishment, in his merit, in his, in this case, Nicodemus, his obedience to the Old Testament law. That he, in his heart, Jesus knew what he was trusting in. It was in what he had done and who he was. Nicodemus' belief was that salvation was like climbing a ladder. And the things that I do and and the involvement that I have in religious things all are things that are getting me closer to God. And Jesus shreds all of this. It doesn't matter who you are, Nicodemus. I really don't care. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished spiritually. I really don't care. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher of Israel. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a a, a powerful individual, a politician of the day. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a spiritual leader. And even if you look in the mirror and you see yourself as a spiritual leader, it really doesn't matter. Here's what I'm saying to you, Nicodemus. To enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And that is not something that you do. That is something that God does in the human heart. And of course, this is later developed in the New Testament. We're not going to get into this, but we've talked about this, this whole doctrine of regeneration, that God is the one who makes us alive so that we can believe and will receive the gospel. Dead men don't believe anything. They've got to be made alive so they can believe something. And we are dead in our trespasses and sin. The spirit makes us alive so that we have, we hear with ears of faith that is also a gift from God. And I can respond then in a way that I am saved and God gets the glory for it. So that there is nobody in heaven who is going to be able to say, look what I have done. It is utterly of God. So that Nicodemus and Jesus represent two very fundamental different approaches to God. Nicodemus, salvation is from man. Look what I have done. Jesus is saying, no, it is from God. It is the Spirit in us. 
Nicodemus represents man's truth, truth from below. Jesus is speaking truth from above. Nicodemus is salvation is accomplished by human effort. And Jesus is saying, no, salvation is of God and, uh, and only of God. Nicodemus, religion on the outside. Jesus, religion of the heart. Nicodemus, look what I did. Jesus, look what Christ did. And for a man who built his entire, the superstructure of his life and reputation on salvation based on his own effort, this was a mind-blowing truth. In fact, his last words recorded in this conversation show his bewilderment. Here's what he says. How can these things be? That's in verse 9. And Jesus answers him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And what Jesus was saying there is what I am talking about is such a basic truth that salvation is from God. And you're the teacher and you don't get this. And I don't think he's mocking him. He's merely pointing out, brother, you have missed it badly. You have missed it badly. In fact, John, in the writing of his gospel, just a few verses before in John 1.12 says it this way. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And my dear friends, only eternity is going to reveal how many Nicodemuses there are even in good churches. People who quietly in their heart of hearts are trusting in what they have done. Believing that somehow they're this, they're that, they're whatever qualification is the thing that is going to merit favor with God. Their trust is in their religiousness, their piety, and their accomplishment. And I think Jesus' words are as poignant as ever. And I say them over this room prayerfully. You must be born again. You can come to this church every day of the week. You can never miss a service until the day that you die. But unless your trust is in what Jesus has done, and this has come by the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Salvation is a God thing. Which John here calls receiving him, believing in his name. And this is where I think the whole birth concept is, a, is, this is a helpful image, I think. So let's try to get the old image out of your mind that I referred to a moment ago. This is where I think it's helpful. I mean, I want you all right now to think very carefully. Think back, go all the way back to when you were born. Okay, remember that. Now let me ask you, what did you do To make that whole thing happen. I mean, has there ever been a baby that came out of the womb and was like, ta-da! You know? (laughs) Babies come out and they're just... You can interview one of them. So what did you do? I don't know where I am. I have no idea how this happened. I'm just here. And that's the way it is with spiritual rebirth. We just suddenly find ourselves here. I believe believe now. I didn't before. I've received now what Christ has did on the cross for me. And this is the context of John 3.16. This famous verse. 
It's in the context of the very highly esteemed religious man who has missed the most fundamental point that salvation does not come from man, it comes from God. Which makes sense now, doesn't it, with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life what is the point what does man do in all of that this is a god thing salvation is of god and i want to ask you today what about you as you sit here tonight I wonder if possibly Jesus was sitting next to you or maybe you're in the family room talking with him and you're like, well, hello, Jesus, I've always wanted to talk to you. And I just have to say that I've, I've read the stories and you're quite an amazing man. And I have to believe based on what I read, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water and the resurrection, that I have to believe that you're at least a teacher sent from God. And you pause and you expect Jesus to say, well, thank you very much. I'm so delighted to meet you. And, and you know, who does your hair or something? <laughs> and Jesus looks past the niceties. And would he speak into your heart the same thing that he did to Nicodemus? I'm really not that impressed by your academic prowess. I'm not particularly interested in your uh, reputation. I am not all that interested in uh, your political connections and the things that you've done in your life. Here's what I want to speak to you. If you are trusting in what you have done, you are lost. Salvation does not come from you. It comes from God. You must be born again. And I wonder tonight with a pastoral heart if we might not quietly have some Nicodemuses here proud that you made it out on a Saturday night I must be right with God look at me I'm in church got your Bible you know lots of things you could even carry on a pretty good conversation about spiritual things but your heart is dead because you are trusting in all of these other things rather than believing in what God did in sending his son. I wonder if Jesus would peer and look into your eye with an eye of love, my friend, and say, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, I was lifted up so that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Your resume lifts you up, and that's not going to get you very far. I died for your sin. Believe in me. Believe in me, and you will enter the kingdom of God. I wonder if Nicodemus, if we might have a Nicodemus or two here, and I wonder if Jesus, through the time that the timeless word of God might not be speaking to your heart in the same way he did so long ago. Now, we don't know how this ended because it just ends with, if your Bible is like mine, it's got a lot of red all the way to verse 21. 
And it doesn't say, and then Nicodemus left, or Nicodemus hung around longer. There's nothing. It's just, that's it. But here's what we do know. If you were to flip over to chapter 7, the Sanhedrin are having a, uh, an argument about Jesus. And they are condemning him. And guess what happens? Nicodemus, the fellow who came at night, speaks up and defends Jesus and says, do we condemn a man without a fair hearing? And the rest of the Sanhedrin is like, have you become a Galilean? In other words, are you secretly a follower of his? That's all it says. We don't find Nicodemus going, that's right, I am, or we don't know. But the man who went to Jesus at night now is quietly starting to defend him. He's starting to find his spiritual backbone. Interesting. Most significantly, though, there's three places we find Nicodemus. At night, in the Sanhedrin, and at the end of the story. John 19, verse 38. Jesus is dead on the cross. He has died for the sins of the world. And John writes what happened. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Well, well, well. Are you telling me that the guy who snuck out to see Jesus at night in chapter 3? When we get to chapter 19... Couldn't be any more different. What do I mean by that? He came at night. He didn't want anybody to know. We get to chapter 19 and he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, are the two guys who care for Jesus' body. Not at night, not under the cloak of darkness, but in broad view of all Jerusalem. And this was the biggest thing that had happened. Remember the disciples later on the road to Emmaus, and everybody's talking about this. Nicodemus shows up at the site, carrying, probably with servants, 75 pounds of anointing oils and spices for Jesus' body. In plain sight of all Jerusalem. He and Joseph take Jesus' body down. Have you ever thought about how you remove a body from a cross? I have to believe you have to crawl up there and remove a nail. Remove the other nail. Remove it out of the feet. Catch the body. And can you see Joseph and Nicodemus now? Soldiers all around, people all around. Carrying the bloody body of Jesus. 
a short distance to the tomb. Jesus' blood all over his clothes, hands, carrying that body to the tomb. Arriving at the garden tomb, Nicodemus would have been there lifting Jesus' arms, wrapping it with the cloth, lifting his legs, his head so gently, wrapping, inserting spices, anointing with oil, 75 pounds of it. Expensive, by the way, that's the lavish gift. He shows up with an extravagant gift for Jesus at the end of the story, wrapping his body, anointing it for burial, and placing his body in the tomb. Interestingly, Nicodemus might have been the last hands that touched Jesus' body before his resurrection. What was Nicodemus thinking as he was doing this? I have to believe he was thinking something like, I talked to this guy in the night. I remember what he said to me. Nicodemus, you can't do it. Salvation is from above. God sent his son. I am that son. And what is so cool is to see at the end of the story, this highly respected, academic, very uh, reputable, high echelon in society guy, bloody, carrying, the cross, or carrying Jesus and placing him in the tomb. What a change. He had met Jesus. And that meeting changed him. Now I have two applications from the life of Nicodemus that I want to highlight for us here in conclusion. Here's the first. Night or day. Night or day. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, which is it for you? I think that to this day, Jesus continues to have a lot of curious people seeking him. They come to him at night. They come to him when it's convenient. They come to him when it's safe. They come to him and identify with him when it doesn't cost their reputation anything. When they can do it secretly. So that they can get on with the rest of their life and carry on their duties and all the things. And people can think that they are who they want to project that they are. Much like Nicodemus. And I wonder tonight if that is you. You don't want to deny Christ. No, no, I wouldn't want to deny Christ. But I only want this relationship on my terms. I wonder if you've ever spoken up for him in the Sanhedrins of your life. You ever found a little spiritual backbone and identified yourself as a follower of Jesus? When doing so will cost you. When doing so will cost the people that you have spent your life trying to earn their respect to disrespect you like Nicodemus. And what I want you to see here, friends, is the change that happens in Nicodemus is the change that happens when you are born again. You don't have to hide it. You're not sneaking around. There has been a change. And we see it in him. It's the difference between night and day, literally. A genuine faith encounter with Jesus changes us. Has it changed you? Have you met Christ? And the second application tonight is just this, and 
I just put down Jesus, friend of sinners. Jesus, friend of sinners. You know, it's wonderful, I think, to think about this story from Jesus' perspective. Let's go back to the night that uh, in John 3. Here, There he is, and he's in the home, and he's doing whatever he was doing. It's late at night. It's time for bed. And there's a knock at the door, and he hears through the hallway the conversation at the door. It's late. Who are you? You know, all, all the things that I already said. I wonder, as Jesus sat there, did he know that this self-righteous aristocrat would one day defend him to the ruling party of the day? Did he know that the hands that were before him would carry a lavish gift to his burial? Did he know that the hands before him would take his body off the cross? Did he know that this man before him would wrap his body and prepare it for burial? Did he know that the hands that he saw before him would be the last hands in the tomb? Absolutely, he knew that. Did he know that this Nicodemus, so filled with self-importance, would someday humble himself and be born again? Of course, he did. And what I love about this point, friends, is that we talk a lot about how Jesus is the friend of the leper and that Jesus is the friend of the tax collector and that Jesus is the friend of the hungry and the sick and all the rest. And those are all things to celebrate because it's all true. But what we see in this story is that Jesus receives the spiritually pompous as well. Those that are filled with a sense of their own self-importance those who are filled with pride. And I look around this room and I know our church, we have a lot of people who have, have physical ailments. And we have a lot of people who have financial ills. But if there is anything, if there's any category that we are overloaded with, is that we have people who are filled with self-importance. And I will stand at the front of that line. And that's one reason I love Nicodemus is because if Jesus loved Nicodemus, then Jesus loves me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you did not simply put in your word teaching, but that you filled it with examples of people so much like us And we look at Nicodemus, and he would just fit in so well around here. We would admire his intellect. We would be impressed by his academic degrees. We would would want to be near him because of his political connections. He would fit in so well in northwest Indiana, and even in our church. And yet, Lord, we see through the eyes of Jesus that he was a man of great need. And I pray over this room tonight. Lord, I pray that that for every Nicodemus here, that we might see in this story that you love us too. And that you would call us to get rid of our trusting and our resumes and the things that we have done. And that our hope would be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, I pray that we might embrace 
Christ, the Christ of John 3, as the Son that you sent, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And Lord, I pray that you would strip away from our room tonight any self-righteousness, any trusting in anything but you. And I pray in particular for the hard heart tonight. Lord, I pray that this story, which you have used for centuries to soften the human heart, I pray that that would happen tonight. And may we have people born again right now. We pray to that end, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.